Our uh, scripture lesson today is from the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians in chapter 3, and then I'm just going to read verses 17 and 18. There is, as always, a whole lot more context. So basically, the reason I'm reading a short passage today is to keep me from telling you all of that context so I can tell you some other things. You're welcome, or I'm sorry, depending on which way you receive that message. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I'll read 17 and 18, where it says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. So we are continuing our journey through the Ten Commandments, and um, today as we look at the Second Commandment, I again want to put the first two together because I think there's always been a little bit of confusion about what the difference is. So first I'm going to make it a little bit more confusing, and then I'm going to try and clarify it, all right? So it goes like this. The First Commandment, in three simple words, is no other gods, also known as no idol gods. And the Second Commandment is don't make images to worship a.k.a. don't make idols to worship. So the problem is that that idol idea comes in both. And so next slide, please. If we do it this way, worship only God and worship God directly, then you now know why there's two commandments at the beginning. That said, I don't think at the end of our... You asking? No. Yes. The children can be dismissed for kids' ministry. Up to grade three. Yeah, thanks for asking. All righty. So who knows what I was talking about? Good thing there's a slide. Summarizing the first two commandments, worship only God, and secondly, worship God directly. Today, we're going to be talking about worshiping God directly, not making, in the older language, graven images. So uh, next slide, please. I'm going to give you um, first some history of interpretation, how this has been in play. Because if I tell you, you're not supposed to carve an idol and worship it. Most of you are going, pretty good on that one. Haven't actually been tempted. Can't carve, as a matter of fact, right? Um, anytime I've used a knife to try and carve something, it always ends up being a toothpick for some reason, right? You keep carving until you have nothing left. So that's not our challenge. So let's do a little bit of history first. Why, why did God give this commandment? Why is it number two? It's right up at the top. It's about how his people were supposed to um, worship him. Um, Exodus 32, which is basically right after God has given the Ten Commandments, uh, Moses comes down from the mountain. The passage we read, by the way, talks about the veil, and that veil is actually talking about Moses. When he came down, he had been in God's presence, who received from God's finger the two tablets, and he was so... Um, so glowing, so on fire with God, if you will, that they made him wear a veil because they couldn't look at Moses, right? That, that's how powerful that experience was. The very next thing that happens after the Ten Commandments are, are expanded for them, after they read them all, so to speak, is the golden calf story. And the golden calf is basically breaking the first two commandments as thoroughly as you possibly can, as quickly as you possibly can, right? So it's sort of like this. You've seen this before. Say we dismiss the children and we have an issue with running, so we say, please walk 
out of the worship space as you go to children's ministry, and they all do this. That's what Israel did, right? God said, don't worship other gods and don't make idol images. And Israel thought, I know what we should do. Let's make an idol image that is of a different God and say, this is the God who took us out of Egypt, right? It's a, a stunning response. Now, if you were... Um, if you were in captivity and you were set free and part of your being set free was people gave you all the gold that they had and then you were in a desert and you're walking around and someone said hey why don't we take all the gold that we have and make a carved calf out of it how many of you would go that is so cool I'm in right that, again not our temptation but if you had grown up in that time and any worship you had done, especially in Egypt, had some sort of golden statues to it, your automatic response to we need to worship is, well, what statue? What are we going to look at? How do we know who we're worshiping? Right? And so for them, it was an automatic response that when they're wondering what's going on and who is our God, we need some kind of golden thing, some kind of carved statue in order for us to worship. So that was a world of carved idols. My question for us is, what might we carve? See anything carved up here? This is carving. And that has a bit of carving. We use, I don't know the names of those tools. We use other tools to make them, so I won't pretend I know. This is a carved piece. It's a big carved piece over there. Did you ever ask the question? I wasn't here, so I'm claiming innocence on this one. Did you ever ask yourself around the year 2000 why you want wooden benches in a day and age when we can make chairs and all kinds of really comfortable things to sit on? We did it because when we think worship in this tradition, you think there better be a pretty nice table, right? There better be a font for, right? Some of us say there better be an organ, and a lot of us say there better be wooden pews because otherwise it's not a worship space. Possible, right? Not the... I'm not saying, boy, we've got to get rid of all these things or idols, we've got to smash them all. Just be aware that when God says, worship me directly, we have, as Tony prayed, a very natural tendency to find certain things that if they're not there, I can't worship. All right? And if there's anything that you can't worship without, other than God and your relationship with him, right, that might be a problem. So I know... Uh, and Ruth Ann told me the story. Was it Matt Redman who wrote The Heart of Worship? Oh, I got the name right even. So this church had a great worship band, and the worship leader, Matt Redman, said, though we have amazing worship music here, we are not going to sing for how long, Ruth Ann? I should never really do this to her because I never prep her for these things. Okay, for a while, they had no worship music. Because people were starting to worship the worship music. And he said, that would be an idol then. That would be worshiping what we worship. I asked one person this question, and you're welcome. I won't name your name. And I wonder if you can answer this question. Do you more often walk out of a service saying, I really loved that song, than saying, I really love Jesus? Right? It's a danger for all of us, and that's this commandment, that we get more in love with what we're doing for Jesus and about Jesus, and that we miss 
being totally in love with Jesus. Okay, that's kind of what this is all about. Uh, next slide, please. They're not going anywhere, just getting a drink, so I don't have to move everything. Anyone know what iconoclasm means? Good. Because there's no use putting up new words if you already actually all know what they are. So in the Reformation, which is the tradition out of which we come, when we had a bit of a hassle with the then predominant only church, no, it wasn't the only church, one of the main churches, which was the Catholic Church, right? And then, unfortunately, we started this movement where every time we disagree, we start another church, right? You know what I'm talking about. It's called denominationalism. It's a problem. One of the things that happened during that time is called iconoclasm. So icon is image, as in do not carve images, that image, right? And iconoclasm is the smashing of images. So next slide, please. Okay, so I'm on a trip in Holland through Than. We're driving with my brother and his wife, and we're in the south of Holland. I believe we're in North Brabant, Nord Brabant, which is North Brabant in English, but it's way in the south of Holland. It's sort of like this. You know when we talk about Muskoka and Algonquin and that, we call that Northern Ontario? Have you ever looked at a map of Ontario? You're still in the south, right? That's how North Brabant works as well. So I'm in the south of Holland in North Brabant in a town called Audenbosch. We have Bosches. These are the older Bosches. I think that's what Audenbosch means. And we're just stopping because I think my brother needed to go into a store and get something. I want to stretch my legs. I get out. I see a church. I'm a pastor. I go across the road. Now, my experience of Holland and churches is the picture on your right. A Reformed church. White walls, brown pews, some stuff at the front for communion, the three pieces, and that's it. So that's what I'm expecting, because that's all I've ever seen in Holland in my personal experience. I walk into this church, and that is St. Agatha's Basilica, and Basilica means, by the way, one of the best-looking churches in Audenbosch, North Brabant, the Netherlands. I almost fell down, to be honest, right? Because when you're expecting that, and you see that, I know it's not a great picture, Google it yourself. St. Agatha's Basilica in Audenbosch. It's called a mini St. Petersburg, which is the Vatican, right? It is amazing. It's overwhelming. It's beautiful. It's powerful. It's colorful. There's all kinds of amazing things in there that when you walk through, you go, I know what that refers to. I know what that refers to. And if I was a Catholic, I'd probably even know more about what that all refers to. It's powerful and moving. So now I have a problem because I'm a child of iconoclasm, right? Iconoclasm was when they took that church and made it look like that. They literally did this in some places, right? If there was stained glass, they smashed it. If there was any image, they took it out and they destroyed it, right? And they did this because they said the second commandment commands that we can't make images in the place of God, right? I appreciate the passion. My personal feeling is I think they went a little bit too far. Because the teaching then became, you can't use anything. Next slide, please. The one with the words on it, yep. Um, this is what our catechism says. This is what came out of the Reformation. But may not images be permitted in churches in place of books for the unlearned? Can't we use pictures to teach people because it's helpful? And the answer is no. We should not try to be wiser than God. 
God wants the Christian community instructed by the living preaching of the word, not by idols that cannot even talk. We're going to have a little problem a little later in the service, by the way. Because there's this guy named Jesus. And he gave us these images of himself to help us worship. Right? This is a picture of what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus' death and resurrection. So there's a little bit of a thing we've got to figure out and understand around this. I'm always a little bit put off. Sorry if I'm making you uncomfortable. We can talk about it later if I am, because I'm challenging the catechism a bit here. When we say things like we should not be wiser than God, in a document that's basically saying, now this is the right answer about how we think about God, we're actually doing the exact opposite of what we're trying not to do. We're saying we know exactly how many images there should be, and you can't use them at all for teaching. That's taking, and I think this is one of the idols, if you will, of the Reformed tradition. We have a deep love for our theology, and sometimes we worship our theology and forget that the only reason theology is there is to help you worship God and get closer to Him. Right? And when you start fighting about what we believe and making it, I can't hang around with other people and love them because they don't believe the same things as I do, you're breaking the second commandment. Right? Love God, love your neighbor. That's why that summary is there. And that includes people who are different from you in the church. That should be obvious, but I feel like we still need to keep saying that out loud. We've got to keep loving those people as well. We are definitely not wiser than God. But God included all kinds of images in his stuff for teaching. I think if you just read this the way it is written on the paper, we shouldn't have Sunday school papers. We should never have any pictures of anything, right? And that's just not a helpful way to teach, okay? So what the commandment really is saying, in my understanding, is don't use any images and worship them directly as they're the most important thing. You can use images because they help you. They always have, right? Images help you understand things. I use word images, right? And when we use word images, it helps people see what they need to understand. And so getting too excited about this and saying there are no pictures, no images, everything's got to be basically black and white without any form to it, right? We're overdoing it and we're missing the point. But of course, worship God directly. Don't let any of these things get in the way, okay? Now, next slide. Bibliolatry. I'm going to dance around this one carefully because it's a sensitive topic for us. Sometimes we actually worship the Bible. Did you know you're not supposed to worship the Bible? The Bible's a tool to help us understand Jesus. And when Jesus is described as the Word, right, he's the embodiment, he's the image, we're going to see that in a minute, of the Bible. He's the Bible in action. And sometimes when we get so excited again about our interpretations of the Bible, what we're worshiping is the Bible and our understanding of it and forgetting that it's actually a story, a journey of God's people seeing God at work throughout history and coming to know and love God through Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? It inspires us to do that. That's its inspiration, right? But when we call it a holy book, that's because it has things that lead us into holiness. It's not that. This book all by itself it's so precious that I'm not allowed to drop it. It's actually just paper, right? But what's in there, when you understand it the way it's meant to be understood, when you allow the spirit that inspired the writers to inspire you, has incredible amounts of power. It's beautiful. It's amazing, right? 
but merely doing the act of saying, well, I nod to this book, but I never open it and read it and do what it says in it, right? That's bibliolatry. That's worshiping something that gets you in the way of actually meeting God. Um, that probably requires a whole lot more unpacking over time, right? But I think we need to keep that conversation going where we understand there's, there's some stuff here we've got to think through as we understand Bible, as we do church together. Because again, the Reformation, which gave us the Catechism, which had a saying, basically, our interpretation of the Bible is the right one, and therefore I have permission to push away anybody who thinks differently about it. I have a deep problem with that, and I hope you do too. Right? I can disagree with them, because that's human. We're always going to disagree. But the idea that we can't fellowship with people who understand things, we all got to start our own churches, folks. I know there's folks here who disagree with me about a couple of things because we've had those conversations. I hope you love me and I love you. That's the journey, right? The Bible was never dropped out of the sky to say, now you have all the answers. Our theology, unfortunately, sometimes says we have all the answers, right? Be careful with that kind of overconfidence, even as you can say, I like our theology. I think it's a really good way of understanding this, but I'm not surprised, unless you've never read any history, that people see it differently. Okay, I've beaten that one hard enough. All right, uh, next slide, please. Now we're moving into the present, in my mind, what we should be thinking about this commandment. So if you remember last week when I read my version of the Ten Commandments, um, I made them all positive, right? They all say, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And I want to help us think, well, what shall we do then if we shall not do those things, okay? So how do we make this positive is my sermon title, Be the Image of God. Don't carve an image of God, be the image of God. And it starts here in Genesis 1. So God created us, human beings, mankind, in his own image. He carved us out of dust, if you will, breathed life into us in his image. And in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. You are a picture, an icon, an image of God walking around in this world, and that is vitally important. That is a core understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You represent, you image, you show God in this world. Next slide. God makes an image. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Back to the communion table, right? Jesus said, this is my body. Jesus said, this is my blood, right? He said, this is an image of me in this world, and do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. When we look at Jesus, hopefully when we read his story in the Bible, we don't just skip to the end to the part where his death pays for our sin and his resurrection gives us new life, but you realize there's a whole piece before that where he teaches all kinds of challenging things about how to live in this world. What he's doing was imaging what it means to be a good human being in this world, right? So if you want a summary what this is all about, it's following Jesus, who is the best human being who ever lived, so that we can be really good human beings in this world based on what he teaches, okay? Jesus is the image. We learn from looking at that image, right, um, and become better image bearers. Next slide. There it is. Be the image. This is our text. And we all are being transformed into his image. 
If you want an assignment today, and I know you all do, take a small sticky note, write this verse, or at least this part of this verse, on it, and stick it on your mirror. All right? So I've been thinking about how we use the Bible in our world. Ever been to a baseball game, soccer game, whatever your favorite sport game is, and someone holds up just the words John 3.16, and all the Christians go, yeah! All the other people go, John's in section 3, row 16? So what? Why do we need to know that? Right? And then think about that as our core verse. It's a brilliant teaching for Christians. Right? I want to suggest you add this to your list. Don't get rid of John 3.16. Of course, it's awesome. Right? But add this verse to your understanding of what the Bible teaches you about yourself. We all are, right now, being transformed into his image, God's image, Jesus' image, by the Spirit. Not if you do X, Y, and Z, or if you have these pieces of furniture in your church, or if you have these four actions, or if you give this much money, you will be transformed. We are being transformed. Some of us are doing it as actively, actively as we possibly can, engaging as much as we can. Some of us, it's happening against our will, right? Sometimes God grabs you by the scruff of the neck, if you will, and grabs your attention because you lost a job or you lost a person or you lost a relationship or things don't seem to make sense anymore. And in that process, the psalmist will continue to tell us, he's transforming you, he's grabbing your attention, he's remaking you into his image. We are on a continual journey of being transformed, and I like that because it keeps us positive, right? It's not, don't do these things. It's, the only reason you wouldn't do those things is because you already know you're being transformed, and God's got a plan for your transformation, and as you engage in that plan for transformation, transformation, you're gonna find a lot of joy and peace, and in fact, no need to do those things that are against the commandments, okay? Next slide. This is the freedom we have for our transformation. This is the more full verse. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's a huge term in the New Testament. We have freedom, all right? And one of my challenges, again, I don't want to say I'm against the Ten Commandments or even reading the Ten Commandments, but if we just regularly read them without explanation, we give, the people, th we give people this impression, as long as you don't do those things, you're in. Right? Now, don't do those things, but I think most of them are obvious. Right? Don't kill. Yep, got that one. But what we need to focus on is the fact that you're actually free in Christ. When you give yourself to Christ, when you relate with Christ, when you love like Christ loves you, then you have the freedom to live these things out. Not the restriction to live those things out, the freedom to live those things. That mindset change is huge. Right? So if we live our entire life saying, oh, no, I can't cross that line because someone told me to, Right? That's one way of living. But if we go, I actually have the freedom to stay on this side because it's way better on this side, and I'm going to enjoy being on this side because this is the best side to be on. Right? Remember Eve in the Garden of Eden? God said, you can eat of all the fruit, but not that one tree in the middle. And she, like us, gets obsessed with that one tree in the middle. She had all the other trees, right? If you want to be free, freely look for that which will actually bless you and fulfill you and give you the most meaningful life possible, which I want to suggest is living Jesus' way, right? Living out the love commandments. Don't obsess about what you can't do, because, you know, I'm sure I've used this before, someone else says, don't think of the pink elephant. Stop thinking of the pink elephant. Stop it. How's that going for you? 
right? You're thinking about that pink elephant. Let's focus on who we are in Christ. We are free, where the Spirit is, to be transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Now, we use this language, and it's okay. We use when someone passes away, when someone dies, they've been translated into glory or they've gone on to glory. And it sometimes sounds like we mean this. There's no glory here, but you do whatever you need to do here, suffer through this thing, so that later you can go on to glory. No, that's not biblical. We are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. It doesn't say we will be. It says we are. So our task as followers of Jesus is to look at him as closely as we possibly can, to be as honest as we possibly can, to come to a place where we start seeing in our lives a transformation that makes us right now in this life be transformed more and more with increasing glory. Are you on that page? Do you want to go on that journey? That's what we're called to do. We're not sitting around waiting. We're engaging in this now. Because, you know, we, we don't have a whole lot of data on what happens after this life. We have Jesus. And most of his teaching was, worry about what's going on here. Worry about your relationship with your neighbor, with your family, with the people down the street. Worry about how you can transform them and yourselves in this life. And I'll work out the details for later. Right? That's the heart of the biblical message transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is a spiritual journey. This is us going, Spirit, fill me. Spirit, shape me. How do I get in touch with the Spirit? How do I pray and connect with the Spirit? Looking for those things and letting that transformation take place. All right, final slide, please. Fully known, fully loved, fully free to fully be. That's what we are all about. It starts with... Do you know yourself as someone fully known by God? God knows everything about you. He created you. He loves you exactly you are. He loves you fully the way you are. He loves you fully even though you have some messy things in your life, right? Let that part sink in. The Lord is a spirit, and the spirit knows you, and the spirit lives in you, and the spirit wants you to know that he knows you fully, and he fully loves you. Hang on to that deep thought above all else. And then... As you allow that to wash over you, you'll understand you're now fully free to be fully whatever he's called you to be. That's the vision of what God has in store for us. That's the vision that a second commandment understanding says, don't be looking for other things that you need to focus on. Allow the fullness of all that God has in store for you to wash over you so you can be fully free to be everything that he has in mind for you to be in this world. Amen.